Welcome back. Did you hear my voice crack again? <laughs> What's wrong with me? That's that's that post-Halloween voice. Oh, I had no voice after Horror Nights at Universal. Nothing. Nothing. Screaming, nothing coming out. Nothing. I'm so jealous. Like, I have always wanted to go to a Horror Night at, like, a theme park. It's. I will say, because I did Disney last year. This year I did Universal. Universal is so much better. Also, I got this. Can you see this? Did I show this to you? It's healing now. That looks like stigmata. <laughs> what is that? I flipped. I can't get into the story. I'll save it for the, for the premium episode. But basically, I flipped off a scooter. Did I tell you any about this? <gasps> I flipped what off a scooter. What have I said? I know. I've been know. preaching and praying and preaching and saying. Everything I've been praying these... and preaching and saying and praying, baby. <laughs> That those damn scooters. I see people in DC on those scooters go- going like the wicked witch, like so fast. And I'm like, someone's going to eat. Girl, I was flying. I was flying because I had parked outside of the park. I can't get into the story, but like basically the the, the ending is I flipped off the scooter, thought I was going to break my arm or something, Aww. my neck maybe. I was fine. I certainly did park that thing. I walked the rest of the way. We went to Horror Night. What I will say to all of the creepers, if you're ever considering Horror Night at Universal, the Express Pass is so worth it. Oh, I can't even. Worth it 10 times over. 10 times over. It was, you get into every ride and every walkthrough Express at least once. I'm talking about like, there were eight horror walkthroughs all of which had a one to three and a half hour line. We got in in less than five minutes, sometimes less than 30 seconds. So absolutely worth it. I just wanted to go on a quick rant about that. I know it's expensive. Boy, do I know it's expensive, but damn, was it worth it? So good. I bet also just for the sheer fact that when you're waiting in line that long, you're going to talk yourself out of going into some scary haunted house. If I've only got 30 seconds to decide, I'm going in. Isn't that, that's like, I was kind of thinking of like the Hitchcock quote. That's like, um, the real fright is in the anticipation, not like the bang. That's kind of mm-hmm. what that is. Like the line itself is like building so much internal suspense that like it almost makes the payoff crazier. Because yeah, once we got into them, some of them were pretty good and pretty scary, but I will say, like, if I waited three hours to get into some of those for what is a seven-minute walkthrough, I would have been pissed. I would have been mad. Oh, okay. I know quickly. What was your favorite or what was the scariest walkthrough or, like, element? Oh, let me think. I mean, we did Chucky. We did, like, a human exterminator one, which is part of the tram. And, like, that was cool because it actually went on to, like, the Universal lot. So, like, they had decked out the actual Bates Motel set and like (gasps) the original Psycho House. And I was like, oh, I'm like, you guys really just hung like haunted cobwebs on this. This is like a piece of history. (laughs) Like you're just letting us walk on this. So that was really cool. We also did a, we didn't do the Evil Dead one. I wish we did, but we ran out of time. The, they reworked the Waterworld show. So it was like the Purge. That's like their stunt show. That was sick. Super gory, lots of blood. At least four people were lit on fire. 
it was really oh it, yeah, it was really something but yeah i think the the stranger things one was like scary they i was screaming at all of them but like the stranger things one was like ridiculous because they have live actors there is nothing more painful baby than seeing a theater major <laughs> at horror night working for that minimum wage because they had this little girl they had this girl playing 11 and the thing is is like they do the same sequence it's like a 15 second sequence and then they reset for the next people that are walking through so every 15 seconds this little girl in her buzz cut wig she was definitely over 18 just goes ah! just screaming at the top of her lungs <laughs> like profuse like vocal cord damage like and then you turn around, like as your group is exiting, and she's like taking like a hit or something. Like, oh, she's back vaping. She's vaping, baby. She's she, vaping. She's, she's, <laughs> she's absolutely vaping. Cherry vape. She's scratching at that wig, that lace front. They had some good lace fronts. I saw some good wigs. Well, thank oh, God. The Last of Us. Okay, sorry. The Last of Us walk through. That scared me because clickers oh. are so scary. <laughs> that was are bad. those okay? I hate that I never watched The Last of Us or clickers like the zombies, like the people that have been infected, basically. Yes. And if you had watched the show, you would know that we can't call them zombies. They are the infected. Oh, that's right. The, <laughs> the infected. The infected. Yes, I did know that. No, they're basically zombies. So they are the scariest TV zombie I've ever seen because they're fast. They are vicious and they're so gross. So gross. But The Last oh of Us God. is so good. You really have to watch it. I know. I know. I have to watch it. I'll watch it with you. Well, Creepers, can we watch okay. it with Stu? Can we do a joint watch? <gasps> we need a watch party, a Creeper watch party. Yes, we could do it. We could do like a Netflix watch party or something. We'll do that for the premiums. That'd be really fun. Yes. Oh my God, that'd be super fun. Just like hundreds of Creepers and us at a watch party. We're like, hey, y'all. How y'all do? Honestly, we should. <laughs> do you know what I didn't do? I cannot believe it. It feels sacrilegious. I didn't watch Hocus Pocus this spooky season. Really? Oh, sometimes you need a gap year. Sometimes you need a gap year. Yeah. <laughs> I felt that way about um Practical Magic. I like started it and I was like, I can't watch yeah. this right now. But I watch it every year. It it just feels so wrong that I, I didn't even get one little like ABC family like 10 second clip like where I just sat on the couch and I switched it later. Like I didn't do any hocus pocus. It's because it's playing in your head at all times. 365. At all times. <laughs> like- yeah. <laughs> book. It's just my internal monologue always. Find so. the book. Brew the potion. Anyway. And suck the lives. And suck the lot. Li- just cut it right there. And suck the lives. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll tamper down the silliness because I think I think I'm doing it um, subconsciously because I have been so deep in this case. Like even up to like 1 a.m. last night, I was in this case. So much so, I for the first time in a long time had nightmares. I had nightmares last night, serious nightmares, and I don't usually get nightmares. So. It is a very before we get into it, and I give you, I won't give you a top line. I'm just going to have to go through the story chronologically. For anyone who is listening and for you, it is extremely graphic what we're going to get into, but it is a story that I do think needs much more attention because not only is it still technically unsolved, but the prime suspect has gotten away through two mistrials, two times they have attempted to try this person. And there are still questions about whether or not he is actually the one who is responsible. Um, So I'm going to get your opinion on this. And we're going to go through it, but to give you just like 
the headline of it, I guess. Let me pull up my notes. It is the dark and intricate case of what happened to Mississippi teen Jessica Chambers. Do you know that name? Maybe if I get into the story, you might, but do you? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So just for like some quick, I don't know, backstory about her and who she was. So she was 19. She's still technically a teen. Um, she was described as an upbeat and kind of friendly former high school cheerleader, described as a smart student, A's and B's. She's living out in rural Mississippi, very small town, like extremely Cortland, when the unthinkable was done to her. And like I said, I can't really give a top line on this. I can just give you some initial backstory and before I get into it and just say that what was done to her was so senseless and so without motive that it almost seemed like a random act of terror. But at the same time, it was so egregious what was done to her that it's impossible to think that. It was very much targeted towards her. We just don't really understand what she could have done that made someone do this. So again, before we get into it, one final warning. This is a very, very graphic case for listeners. And before we really dive into the case, I'll just say welcome back, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Halloween episode. We'll get through some of the quick to-dos. Thank you again for joining Creep Time. If you're new here, subscribe. Follow the podcast for new episodes on Fridays. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for spreading the word about Creep Time when you comment, when you leave reviews. And join us on Reddit after the show because we're going to talk about this case and I want to hear your feedback. So that's all I'm going to give you. But I am going to send you the Google Doc that I made you. I made you the Google Doc of the images. This is not this is nothing graphic. This won't. This is just going to show you okay. a picture of her, of Jessica. This will show you a picture of our chief suspect that I'll get into, Quentin Tellis. And I have some screenshots of the location. So the gas station, which will be a central part of the story, his home, which is actually diagonal from the gas station, and the road in which she was found, Heron Road. Very, very rural back road. So let me go ahead and drop this in the chat. You have me scared right now. I, I can sense <laughs> that it. Intro I can sense it. was so somber. Like it was just like, hello, creepers. Welcome back. It's about to get real. <laughs> yeah. I, I really, I, it's, it's, about to get real. it's honestly, it's me struggling to like get through any yeah. sort of like usual pep in creep time because this case has had me so deeply wrapped and I made the mistake of going too deep in the research to the point where I was watching the court proceedings. Um, I think during the no. second mistrial where they showed the autopsy photos and that was really, really overwhelming to see, like showed them to the jury and it's filmed. <sighs> so I've had a tough week <laughs> researching this one, but I bet. yeah, it's, it's usually, I feel like I usually, we talked about this last time, we were on together, but I feel like I've gotten pretty good at kind of separating it and being able to objectively tell the story and not get too wrapped up in the horror of it. But this one got me pretty bad. All right. So where does this all begin? It was on the night of December 6th. It's 2014 and it's precisely 8.04 PM. And if you're looking at the pictures right now, Stu, I'm going to direct you to, I think it's the last one. The very last one. Do you see it? It's Heron Road. The, the back road? Yeah, yeah, the back road. So that's our setting. That's where we are. 8.04 p.m. There are two witnesses who are driving down this back road, dark, rural, known as Heron Road, when they come upon something distressing. There are 
two slightly differing accounts of exactly what they saw in this witness statement, but essentially what they saw on the back road is a parked car that is completely engulfed in flames, like burning, huge, huge fire. To their description, it was like something out of a nightmare because this is a relatively untrafficked road. It's a back road, so they just couldn't really piece together what is the story here. Like this, I mean, it's parked. It doesn't really look like it flipped over or there's an accident or anything. So how is this car completely on fire? And more importantly, is someone inside? So they call 911. It's treated as a potential accident. So EMTs, first responders, they show up. They arrive first at the scene. They do so by 8.09 p.m. So they get there and they're trying to assess, you know, is anybody inside the car? But they don't see anybody inside the car in the flames, which is confusing because they're trying to, again, figure out the situation. Is this a car accident? It was in this moment they heard a noise come from the woods behind the car. So the EMTs look up, take their attention to the woods, where they saw something out of a horror movie. Emerging from the woods was 19-year-old Jessica Chambers staggering slowly on fire. Her entire (gasps) body was burning and had burned so badly that the skin was described to have been completely melted off and leathered in certain parts. The EMTs talked about this later on when they testified, saying it was so grisly that she actually looked like a monster. A zombie was what they used. She emerged staggering from the woods, completely exposed. She had nothing on but her underwear, and it wasn't clear immediately if her clothes had been removed before or if they had burned off. And they're just seeing leathered skin. All her hair is burned off. All of her her features are burned off. Exposed, twitching Mm -hmm. muscle. And she's staggering out of these woods, kind of just repeatedly like trying to speak. So they act fast. They get her down to the ground. They put a blanket over her to suffocate the flames. And reportedly, there's like a guttural whisper, like a a gurgling whisper coming from her mouth. And she's just like, help me, help me. Like can't really move her mouth over and over. Now, her voice and her tongue were extremely damaged, like her cords. But they're able to get a few questions out of her immediately, which is, it's it seems invaluable to this case, but it causes so much contention when the actual court proceedings come mm-hmm. out. So, like things like this, like it just did not happen in a small county in Mississippi. Like this is very, very close knit community, very communal. There's only like 500 people who lived in Cortland, Mississippi at the time, so everybody knows everybody. But she's unrecognizable, so nobody knows who she is. So the first question they ask her is, "Who are you?" Where in a hushed whisper she goes. Jessica. Instantly, instantly knew it was Jessica Chambers. Everybody knew everybody. They had watched this girl grow up. Like she's a cheerleader from like the high school games. Like she's now in front of them on the ground, burned beyond recognition. So she then fed them our first clue just to like to how dark the story would become. Because don't forget, at this point, it looked like a horrific accident that she was burned in. And she whispers, He set me on fire. Words that every witness there corroborated. They all heard it. So they are stunned from this and they immediately follow it up with another question. And they're like, who, who set you on fire? Give us a name. And her voice was, it's essentially gone. I mean, like it is burning, literally burning in real time. There are varying witness statements on this huge, huge point of contention in this case, but they all agree that they heard her say either Eric 
or Derek. Now, the reason this has been a huge point of contention in the case is once we would learn the full extent of her injuries, just how badly burned her tongue was, it's entirely possible that she was saying a completely different name or just like couldn't get the full name out. Like, it's amazing she Mm -hmm. was even able to make sound. So one of the paramedics who was there, I read about this, claimed that he was like, Eric who? And she responded, what they think she said was no. Now that could either mean like, no, not Eric, or it could mean like, no, I don't know his last name, you know? Mm -hmm. I I don't know. It's really tough to interpret it, of course, because obviously, you know, we're going off of their first person testimony, but it would seem to me like that's the wrong name, just from my gut instinct. Do you have any initial thoughts on that? I would think the same thing. Yeah, I should probably if, check if in with you. Are you doing like okay, by helpless? the way? That was a lot to throw at you <laughs> very fast. I'm like, no, um, I, well, my first thought was, okay, if somebody tried to do something to her, maybe like sexually or something in the car and then tried to kill her and thought they were going to kill her by setting her on fire. So like, I guess I was already trying to start to deduce like how she got into this predicament, but the idea of like um, being able to walk and emerge out of the woods burning alive in like the shock. thought that she did that <laughs> i'm like absolutely amazed that she was even like able to move um she could barely but the problem was it's like i when i was watching the court testimony from the burn doctor they brought in um because her skin had effectively burned away or parts of it had leathered and the muscles were basically just twitching. She really had very little control over her movement. So she's walking Mm -hmm. kind of like what you would describe as a movie zombie, like stiff. Yeah. Very, very terrifying image. But to answer your question, I think I would, if I'm the EMT and I said, Eric, and she said, no, then I would be like, okay, wrong. Like I got the wrong thing. Cause I would just imagine if you're that out of commission, that like you're like, I don't know how to quite describe it, but if you're like, if that's like your last ditch effort to like get it right, that you just be like, no, mm-hmm. not, you know, I don't think, I, I don't know. Well, there were some people, I read another theory on Reddit about this, about, cause I'll, you can imagine this is like a huge focal point in this case about like her final words. Some people said syllable wise and phonetically, maybe she wasn't trying to say Eric. She was trying to say car wreck which has been heavily debated Mm. because this does not look like a car wreck. Um, And again, she very deliberately said, he set me on fire. But two things can Mm -hmm. be true, you know? And it depends. I was trying to imagine this with um, an immobilized tongue and what the phonetics of this would sound like. But we have a ton to get into, so I'll keep going. But that is the immediate extent of the information that we have from her. And the sight and the experience of all of this was so disturbing that eventually, like I said, these first responders, they suffer from PTSD from what they saw that night. Like it is an unimaginable sight. And I would argue this could be one of the most graphic cases we've ever covered on this podcast. For sure. The only other thing that came to mind was maybe Kendrick Johnson, just because it is a like a very grisly death. Like there's a lot of bodily injury there, but it, it just hit me really, really hard and a very dark sight. The thought of pulling up and a burning person staggers from the woods. There's something also just about the idea of a burning body that's just like inherently more 
just demonic and dark like just that's so grotesque to even imagine the person still alive and that it's not like a monster like you were saying they kind of envisioned or that's what they visualized when she came out of the woods like there's just something so scary about a burning body that's alive it's really difficult to imagine and even i mean the burn doctor that they brought into court like he made note of this saying that like you know of course we treat a lot of burns that's our specialty but it's very very rare very uncommon to see a full body burn like this so this is actually something most professionals in the medical field don't see every day they don't see a head to toe completely engulfed in in flames but it's actually even worse than we imagined so what is the immediate aftermath? So we get the aftermath that based on the extent of these injuries, of course, she cannot be treated in Cortland, Mississippi. She is airlifted out of there. She's taken to a hospital in Memphis for immediate treatment where they classify these burns as deep thermal burns, which is almost impossible to come back from because the damage is so done. And what it also indicates is that she was burning for a long time, a long, slow burn. But it was in the hospital that they learned the true extent of these injuries. While 93 to 98% of her exterior body had been burned off with the exception of her genitals, her buttocks, and her feet, like the, the soles of her feet, what was chilling for doctors <clears throat> who were treating her was that they learned that not only was she set on fire intentionally and externally, the attacker had forced poured gasoline down her nose and her throat and then lit a flame inside her mouth so she was burning from the inside my god i'm sorry to interrupt you with an oh my god but that is so dark it is extreme extreme torture he had nearly i mean that's why it is incredible and largely contested like her speech because it's incredible she could even make noise, let alone try to enunciate things, because the internal flame coming from inside her, I mean, like, gasoline will continue to burn wherever it is, so if it's inside you, she is burning from the inside out. It's destroying her organs, her vocal cords, um, her tongue, like, everything is swelling and sizzling. So getting those few words out must have been unimaginably painful. Like, she was trying to fight to expose who did this to her. So it's devastating, of course, for the family because Jessica is not expected to survive the extent of the injuries and she would end up dying by the next morning. Her body eventually shuts down from just how deeply she'd been burned. Now, earlier in the night, after the initial discovery and her being airlifted, they contacted Jessica's father and stepmother into her description. And from what neighbors said, the stepmother ran out of the house screaming. From that news, like started running into the street, screaming and ran to Jessica's biological mother's home, like burst through her door, screaming, someone set Jessica on fire. A sentence that her mother described she couldn't even comprehend because it's beyond just a stage of like immediate denial and disbelief. And we've seen this before, I think, with like the Tamla Horsford case when they said, like, your wife is dead. She's like, there's absolutely no way they have the right person like i just talked to jessica on the phone not even an hour ago an an hour ago she was alone there's no way they have the right person so 
once it sets in, the entire family, they make their way to the hospital that night. This is before she's died. And they're informed by doctors that there is, there's really nothing they can do for her. I mean, her body is completely destroyed. So they're, at this point, all they can do is make her comfortable or as comfortable as they possibly can as she's expected to pass in the next few hours. So they allowed the parents to go in to see their daughter in this state. And they informed Jessica that, you know, even though she's barely conscious and she's heavily medicated, her family was with her in the room. And to her mother's description, in the instant agony of just realizing how quickly all of this unfolded and what they were presented with, she vividly remembers telling Jessica, baby, if you're in too much pain, it's okay to let go. And her final words, doctors confirm this too, before Jessica died, she held Jessica's hand and she said, I will get you justice. I just got full chills up my arm. Oh, I instantly cried. (sighs) Instantly cried. I will get you justice. And it was like clockwork in that moment. She took her last breath. She let go. Uh, wow. What a strong, that was her mother, not the stepmother. No, this is her mother, her Lisa, mother. Yeah, who unfortunately I believe has passed away since, which I think mm-hmm. the grief of this, I, I talked about this with somebody online, but because I've been talking to a lot of people about this case, I think grief that is this unimaginable, truly, I'm sure she passed away from something medical, but grief heavily contributes to health ailments in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. The stress it puts on your body. Oh, my God. She passed at 52. Uh, Like, she was young. Yeah. I just can't imagine. I mean, there are parents that have to lose their kids uh, unjustly all the time. We cover it on this podcast. But to have the last visualization of my child being basically, you know, this, like, deformed version of themselves is just... I don't know how you ever kind of reckon with that. Like, how do you ever get peace from seeing that? It's, I mean, it's just awful. I, I may have, I've watched a lot of interviews with the family, with the father, the mother while she was still alive, and the stepmother. And it's kind of a reallocation of that pain where they just become so dead set on trying to seek justice for her, which rightfully so. Because as we would learn and why we continue to talk about this story and cases like this is that We have a very clear suspect, as you'll learn, but this case is still considered unsolved. Two mistrials, two separate juries could not decide whether or not he was guilty. Oh, my God. That's not justice. I'm going to get angry. I can feel it. I'm sure you will. I mean, I was it's there's a lot of like complex emotions that go through this because at first it's shocking and it feels horrifying to imagine the sight of like the burning car and her on fire. And then you feel a deep depression and sadness thinking about the anguish that this family went through and that they were just, I mean, like notified at like what, 9, 10 p.m. That like your daughter has a few hours left to live who, you know, was with them early on the phone with them earlier that night, like literally left home and was like, I'm going out to get something to eat fill my car up with gas. It's just crazy how fast all of that turned around. But like I said, almost immediately after those final words, Jessica does pass away at 2.37 a.m., surrounded by her family, but she is unrecognizable as her face had been charred completely off. All of her features were basically gone. So that is the setup 
for the actual event. And the remainder of this case is really about unraveling and piecing together the story of understanding what happened in the before and what is the motive for something so evil. So I'm going to go through a little bit of what was found, and then I'm going to talk about the actual night of. So we can go through this step by step, and I'm going to reference those pictures and walk you through it. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So first, what they additionally found after like the scene of the crime was looked at by the following afternoon there is a man who is walking down a road kind of like a trail which is located like an eighth of a mile from the scene of the crime it's not entirely clear if he was there looking for things um but this was massive news at the time because again things like this don't happen in a small county there's an unknown suspect a teen girl who was doused with gasoline internally and burned alive like people were leaving town they were mortified So he's walking near this cut-through. He found something very valuable to the case. Her car keys. A major inconsistency. Because, of course, they're found an eighth of a mile from the car that was set on fire. So how do we explain it? So those are submitted for evidence as her phone. Her phone, they were able to retrieve from the inside of her car. It was melted. And there is a request put out for a look back into her phone records, which only 24 hours only was approved but this was so they of Mm. course they could piece together like the timeline of the prior day like prior to her attack and being burned alive but before they they look you know we get into it i just think it's crazy just on that 24 hour note that they would only approve a look back window of like 24 hours seems odd like it does seem odd why not give investigators full reign of like all of her records so you can really piece together every possible suspect they went through 150 interviewed suspects in this case i mean the only thing i could think of is southern deep south states tend to be a little bit more conservative when it comes to like privacy like that Mm -hmm. yeah um privacy that's the only thing i could really think of but i mean god with something this grotesque you'd think anybody across any sort of line would just be like let's figure it out like yeah grant them the extension for you know that's disgusting what happened to this person but i know that's not how it works i mean of course like even if just for piecing the story together but especially in a case where you have a suspect at large you don't know who did this Mm -hmm. to this girl somebody set her on fire so i then have our timeline based on what was obtained from those phone records um both from jessica's phone and then a character that we'll meet in the story her boyfriend or fling at the time, really her fling, not her boyfriend, I should say, Quentin Tellis, who is the second picture of the man in the Google Doc that I sent you. I think he was 26 at the time, but his age is a bit confusing. She was 19. He's about 26. So let's walk through the day of. Jessica's first correspondence was texting her friend Keisha first thing in the morning, and Keisha came and picked her up at her house at around 10.30 a.m., We know this, black and white. But Keisha was not alone in that car. She picked up Jessica with a man in the car who Jessica knew at the time, Quentin Tellis. Now, just for some context from what I read, um, at the time, Quentin had no, like, prior history in the law with, like, violence at 26. He wasn't a stranger to police, per se. He did have a prior record due to a burglary charge and some drug-related offenses, and there were whispers in town that he could have a gang affiliation, something that I think was later 
corroborated from a picture that I found of him in prison holding up a gang sign for a common Mississippi gang, although not 100% confirmed. Jessica went to the same high school with him, although of course he's 26, she's 19, they were not in the same class at any point. But they were known at the time to possibly be hooking up or he was pursuing her. Now according to the story, 10.30 a.m., picked her up, the three of them drove around for close to an hour before he got dropped off back at his home, which is across the street from the gas station slash convenience store called M&M. That's in the picture that I sent you. You can see the gas station, Mm -hmm. his house, literally across the street. Like diagonal across the street. Okay. Which is super valuable for this case because police are actually able to obtain both the phone records and the convenience store camera footage, which just so happened to be pointing literally at his house. So at this point, his story seems to check out 100%. He was dropped off that morning right on time, just like he said. The camera footage would also show Jessica kind of Um, stopping at that gas station multiple times a day. But that was an event that was very normal in this town because this was really the only gas station or major convenience store. So it's like a go-to for the entire county. By noon, it's believed that Jessica made her way to her mom, Lisa's house, and she took a nap. She reportedly fell asleep right in the living room chair. Lisa was home. She slept till about 4.30 p.m. that evening before she got a text that woke her up from Quentin, the the hookup. It looked like they were like trying to coordinate like dinner that night, like hanging out where he was like trying to get her to come like pick him up. And she was like, I will if you like buy me Taco Bell or something like it was that was the exchange. Following the texts, she gets a phone call at 4.59 p.m. to set up their plan. Call lasts only 33 seconds, very short. And she tells her mom, I'm going to head out. I'm going to grab something to eat. I'm going to put gas in my car, clean my car, and I'll see you later. Within just a couple of hours after saying goodbye to her mom, that event would take place in which she is burned alive. So what we know happened next is that she leaves the house close to 5.15. The next timestamp we have is that camera footage of her back at the gas station around 5.30 p.m. She calls Quentin. She's getting gas. And don't forget, his house is right next to the gas station, but I don't think he was there. Like, she's picking him up in a different town, which is why she has to drive to the town in the next part of the story. So he calls her a couple of minutes later, and he would tell investigators that he's asking her to come pick him up. So that's 5.34. For almost an hour, there is no correspondence between them. And what we can tell from cell tower records is that Jessica's car is moving. We know where she's going. So she leaves her county, and she goes to Batesville, by about 6 p.m. That's a a nearby county. We don't fully know what she was picking him up from, but that's what we think she was doing. Picks him up, and then we see that she stops at Taco Bell. We think that's where they both had dinner. So far, all of this aligns with Quentin's story, just the two of them together. So they're at this Taco Bell. They're driving back. He calls his own sister at 617, and while he's on this call, his phone records from the cell tower show that he flipped from Batesville to Cortland County. So they're moving by 617, like they're on their way back to the hometown. So at 6.30 p.m., this is where the timing of everything starts to kind of go downhill and we get like a little, things go off, like we get a little murky with his story. He claims they stopped near his house. They smoked weed in the car. They went behind his house outside. They had sex. And then from his story, I mean, the cell data, that's 
found on his phone and I think hers at the time, this made sense. Like this was all kind of like lining up. They're like across the street, diagonal from the gas station at his house doing all this. At 6.48, Jessica makes a phone call to her mom. This would be the last time she ever talks to her mom. It's not super clear what she said, and she didn't say anything alarming, but her mom felt something was really off on this call because it was very quiet in the background, which was odd because every time Jessica calls her, she's usually like in her car and there's like music playing. And it just felt like the intention of the call felt strange and she didn't really know like what it was about. And she sensed that Jessica was with somebody. She wasn't alone because it was so quiet. The call lasts less than two minutes. And like I said, it is the last time she ever speaks to her mother before she is found completely engulfed in fire. So this is when things go off the rails. After that call ends, it's about 6.50 p.m. The cell tower data goes a bit wild because there is a dramatic shift from where her phone is seen at his place. And it starts going like very fast to the west. Um, And eventually it's 7.30, so that's like a 40-minute period of time. It looks like she stopped on Heron Road, which is eventually where she's found on fire. By 7.42 p.m., Quinton leaves a voicemail on her phone, suggesting that they're not together at this point. If he's leaving a voicemail and he follows it up with a text that says, Bay, my friend is coming over tonight. I'll call you tomorrow. Good night, sweet dreams. By 8.04 p.m., Her cell connection cuts out completely, which is when we think her phone melted in the car. So just a few minutes later, we get that first call to 911 of that report of the burning car. First responders show up at the scene. They're there and they find Jessica by 8.09 p.m. So before we get into like discussing what we know of that timeline, I do have a couple of quick additional data points that I found that I really really want to call attention to. So I'm looking at Quentin's records on his phone. It looks like his phone was either asleep, not in use, or in airplane mode between 6.55 and 7.41. During that time, that window, there were five different girls trying to text him to like meet up for the night. Didn't respond to any of them. So he's preoccupied doing something, we think. I also saw gas station security footage um, because again, this this story has a lot of like, you know, footage that suggests, you know, whether or not the timestamp is real or the timeline is real. So they claim he claims that they're having sex in the backyard, right around this like six forty something time. Surely we would see on the camera footage in the distance near his house something that corroborates that, right? Like maybe a car coming in and out. It's too dark and it's too grainy to like really piece together what we're seeing, but there are three major moments that I saw in that footage. Between 7 to 7.30, I see three different cars kind of coming in and out of that area where his home is. One leaves the driveway of their home, it looks like, and he later said this was his Uncle Sammy. That's at like 7.10. Then in the driveway area that kind of like on the side of the house that leads to the back of the house, maybe where like they were going to have sex if that was true, it looks like two people get into a car that leaves at 726. But and it wasn't the neighbor woman because they confirmed later like she's at work and it wasn't Quentin's sister because she was at home. So I'm assuming that was Quentin and Jessica maybe. But that also doesn't make sense with like 
her cell data, that's kind of ruled out because like her cell data says like by 650, she's moving. Like she's, her phone is traveling in a car. Three minutes after that, around 730, it looks like Quentin's mother, she leaves the driveway in her car. She heads to the convenience store, which I, I think that's where his sister actually was at the time too. Everybody's at this convenience store. So I wanted to suggest that maybe between 726 is when like that two passenger car is like headed to Heron Road at 742. Cause that's the next timestamp we have when he's back online and he's leaving that voicemail. Mm. That's like a 16 minute period. That's really tight. Yeah. Cause how long does it take to get from his the, house the to the gas station slash his house to Heron? Six minutes. Six oh, minutes. Okay. Yeah, I I thought it would be okay. much further too, but it's a really small county. But it's like she's the exact point. I don't know where she was found on Heron Road, but the midpoint of Heron Road from that gas station and his home is about a six minute drive. So, I there's some narrative that's pieced together here about like why we think like what we think those cars could have meant, but it just doesn't fully account for that cell data saying like oh like by six fifty p.m. Her car was already moving, we think. You know, like her phone in that car, her, she's already moving. But just like initial thoughts on that overall timeline, because it feels kind of tight. I know that's like a lot of information to throw your way, but I really wanted to be thorough with this. So you're saying they went out and they did their thing in the, you know, in the backyard or whatever. Then Mm -hmm. she leaves entirely on her own and goes out towards Heron Road at 650? Like she starts moving or is she still with him at that time? We don't actually know. So okay, I, I have my suspicions of how I think this went down. If I had to suggest, I think that he was with her when they left at 650 going west on Heron Road. And I think something mm-hmm. happened in that car. And then mm-hmm. I think he got out on foot. Mm-hmm. And then I That's think, what I was yeah, and then I think we see another car leaving from his home maybe like after like 7 26 or something whatever the timestamp was because then by 7:42 he's back in the same area like on Heron Road from his cell data and he's on foot cuz he's back and online what was his reasoning behind going back to Heron Road at 7:42 it's i mean like you can't get a word out of him he's just incoherent like making up lies, wild goose chases. Mm -hmm. Like there is no feasible way in my mind that he is not connected to to her death in some way. I mean, there's lots of debate and speculation about whether or not he was the one who did this to her. And I'm willing to open up that conversation, but I do not believe that he is not like absolved of this. He either did it himself or he knew what was happening to her and helped. Yeah. Because one of my my thoughts as we were talking was when you said he had other women um, mm-hmm. texting him, I was thinking, is there a world where someone found out that he was, you know, hooking up with her? And so they decided to find Jessica and do this to her. Like, like saying it was a woman. A lot, something... a lot of people have talked about yeah. that. Yeah. People have said, like, why have, have we only ever considered like a man in this scenario? And there's a lot of that I'll get into a little bit more about, like what could have happened in this timeline with like sexual assault. And sadly I learned that they were never able to actually do 
um, and like an examination for sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And they actually weren't even able to tell if she had any external injuries because of how severely she was burned, but, which is crazy. That's so crazy. So crazy. The other thing that I was thinking was the, and I hate to, to kind of loop this in, but the gang element of this, mm-hmm. I think that something like pouring gasoline and then lighting somebody on fire. I mean, that to me sends such a clear, like vindictive message, yes. like a warning, basically. It's not like, I feel like if it was some sort of spat between girlfriend, boyfriend, that definitely happens all the time where that ends up in a death, but it's usually like he just would bludgeon her or knock her out and she dies mm-hmm. or it's, that would be so extreme it to is, yes, I just completely do that. agree. I compl- I was like, this feels very, very, very gang related in that way because it I it's it's kind of it's torture in and of itself, but then it opens up another question and debate about whether or not the person who was doing this to her actually thought she was alive or dead, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if we lean into this Quentin theory that says he made his way there twice. So if he made his way there twice, he would have had to have known she was going to stay in place, you know, like not leave the car. Right. So I'm going to keep going because there's additional information here that I want to call attention to. But yes, okay, I do have more. So I kept digging into this guy's record because I wanted to see what exactly happened. It's interesting to see like what happened in the before, what happened in the event. But I want to know what immediately happened in the aftermath where did he go? What did he do later that night, this Quentin character? So I'm going further into his phone records, the ones that were made available, and I'm going to walk you through it. So she's found on fire, 8.09 p.m. We know that timestamp. So if we backtrack closer to like the 7.46, like 7.42 um, moment, 7.42 is when his phone comes back online. And it's in the general area that I guess that is not his house 746, he is in communication with someone claiming he is heading on foot to his sister's house to get her car. Now, he's on foot, and there is a cut-through trail, actually, that comes out from Heron Road that would lead to his sister's house where he could get this car. This is eventually, of course, where Jessica is found burning. It's where her car is found burning. There were no prior texts or like any communications for like a setup with his sister earlier in the day where he was talking about borrowing his sister's car. And we would later learn that he had actually never done that before. Like it wasn't a common thing. He'd only ever borrowed her car once before and it was to like do her a favor, like get it washed. So that communication happens. Was that a little, what was that the background? <laughs> was that, that a team's message? freaking outlook. Yes. <laughs> I have it shut off, and I guess the new I had it updated last night, and I think it has like new notification settings. Oh God, I'm it's so okay, sorry. it's fine. I was like, "Is that you or me?" <laughs> no, that's me. That's the scariest part about this whole podcast. I know. I needed a little break. I needed a second to just come down from the train. Let me know when you're good, baby. I'm good. Okay, so. We get that communication, 7.46, but then after 7.46, between that to 8 p.m., his phone is not in use, but we do get some security footage. This is interesting. It looks like a car came, possibly his sister's car, it's really tough to tell, but came into like his driveway and went directly into like a storage garage at 7.52 
this is interesting. But then they pull out and they drive off. By 8 p.m., we officially see camera footage once again passing the gas station. And this time we know for sure, oh, that's like his sister's car. We're able to confirm it. He's definitely driving it and he is definitely driving it very fast. He appears to be flying in the direction of Batesville yet again. So he later told investigators that he was going to Batesville to like get to a Piggly Wiggly to get a prepaid like credit card. I, they call them green dot cards. You ever heard of that? I feel like I have. It's like a cash um, gift card, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, this is true because we're able to verify this on camera from that grocery store. So we then get a phone record of him like at the grocery store trying to get this card. He's rapidly calling his sister, calls her five times back to back about this green dot card for whatever reason. In my opinion, it maybe looks like somebody who's trying to get some money to get out of town really quick. Exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, but who knows? We don't actually know. He is seen leaving with the green dot card, and he's wearing a red jacket by 8.30 p.m. This is really interesting because at this point, Jessica has already been found, and Cortland is, like, going into chaos. So he's coming back into, like, a very chaotic county by the time he's coming back at 8.30. Like, they've, they've got every resource out from neighboring, like, towns, too. Like, cruisers are out. All the EMTs, word is spreading around town everywhere that Jessica Chambers was found on fire on Heron Road. So our last timestamp, where we're going to see him one more time on camera, is back at the original gas station, the one across from his house. This is in Cortland at 9.57 p.m., so over an hour after we last saw him coming out of the Piggly Wiggly. He goes inside. He is now wearing a different colored outfit. He changed his clothes. While inside, he is in the presence of someone, I think either the cashier or somebody there, because a lot of people in the store, who is telling the whole store that Jessica Chambers was found burned alive on Heron Road. He later confirms this is how he claims he found out about Jessica. On camera, he seemingly has no reaction, leaves the store mm -hmm. on foot, and then deleted all of their messages, phone calls, and her entire contact from his phone. Pause right there. Uh, Not a... Obviously, there's some connection. I just, like, I can't even believe there are people out there who... There are people who protest for his innocence. And I'm like, are you seeing the same case that I'm seeing? Like, what are we doing? I don't get it. Because here's the deal. Even if he didn't kill her... What is all this running around? What is that? If That's not an innocent person. I'm sorry. What is the running around? What is like the, the phone record showing you at like 742 on foot near Heron Road? Like what are we doing here? Deleting her contacts? Who needs, to, who needs to go get a prepaid credit card from Piggly Wiggly at 8.15 p.m.? Like truly? It's suspicious. I mean. It's it's just weird. You and don't have to be an investigator to know that this is this is fishy. <laughs> no. <laughs> The, the other thing I was thinking is, like, if I was an investigator, my number one question would be, how'd you guys leave it? How'd you leave it when you left? What was her, you know, what was the exchange like when you left that evening? Because I feel like that's how you could tell is if, I mean, I'm actually curious what his answer was. I don't know if you know that, but it's just like. It was impossible uh, to, to trace it all because, I mean, obviously the prosecutors the district attorney they're like guilty absolutely guilty he changed his story yeah. like five times over about like their last exchange so who even knows what he's saying but 
What's crazy about this is that I am going to get into a few additional details. And it's crazy that like the prosecution ended up pulling some of these witnesses up who like threw a wrench in the plan. I don't know why they did this, but a wrench in like the case. There are still people who are convinced that like it's impossible to actually convict him of the murder, you know? Well, regardless of if he did it or not, Mm -hmm. somebody needs to, like, figure out who who else is involved. Because, Mm -hmm. like, to me, I keep going back to it's either him doing it vindictively or somebody that's out to get him did that to him, like, did it to his girl to Well, that's the crazy thing. They had only known each other for, like, two weeks. They're not even boyfriend-girlfriend. Like, in fact, from the text records, it looked like he was consistently trying to pursue her for sex, and she was saying no. So this whole story Mm. about them having sex on that night also threw up a huge red flag because I'm like, something went down, or she still did not want to have sex with you, and then you assaulted her. Like, something like Mm -hmm. that feels very, very clear to me. But let me keep going a little bit into the tail end of this and just like recapping some of the evidence. Then I'm going to run through the investigation where we're going to see how this folds out in court or unfolds in court. So I've got my mind, like, as you can tell, probably made up about his involvement. But what was not clear here, even if we are thinking that it is him, is the motive for something that is so unbelievably gruesome to like force feed somebody gasoline and light up a match or a lighter in their mouth. That's insane. What does feel clear is that he was on foot. We know this to be true. He was probably cutting through that trail at 742 to get his sister's car. Did some digging on that trail. You want to know where her car keys were found? The ones that were found an eighth of a mile from the burning car? Right on that cut through trail. trail. Right on that trail. (sighs) I just, we, we need to be investigators or prosecutors or something because i we do (laughs) things feel so clear to me that i'm like how have we not nailed this so in the next hour i think what we see is probably him panicking and like soaring around town he goes all the way to batesville in his sister's car to get this money get the green dot card he's changing his clothes deleting all the messages he's covering his ass it's like i've seen enough cases to know that this is black and white But then we get into the investigation that ties the whole narrative together. So first, who would have motive and who is caught red-handed? Now, here's where the investigation confused me, because it sounds like they initially had their eyes on Quentin for a long time, like more than a year, um, before they were actually able to, like, charge him with connection, possible connection to the murder. And it almost sounded like the phone records, like I was getting at before, were a huge hurdle for this, which is what you were talking about, where you're like, some more like conservative states that can be really tricky about like getting approval or search warrants to get phone records to to search for these things, like to pry into people's privacy. But surely a case that is as gruesome as this, it, it would not matter. But by 2016, he is officially named as the target of their investigation in the murder of Jessica Chambers. And as it would have it at this point, Quentin is already in prison. He was caught Mm. using a debit card. This is the other thing, too. I had mentioned before that Quentin at 26 had no prior record of violence that could say that he would do something this violent. He is arrested by 2016. I think it was actually August of 2015 
because he was found using a debit card of a Thai graduate exchange student who was found tortured and stabbed more than 30 times in August of the year before. Now, at this point, I don't think they had enough evidence to actually charge him. He's only being, like, indicted with a, like the connection because of the stolen debit card. Like, clearly, you must know something about this girl that was tortured and murdered. So he's in prison for that. And it's just not entirely clear, like, where that case was, like, landing just yet. But this all eventually circles back to the conversation around Jessica. Clearly, he was capable, deranged, and sadistic enough of a person beyond all of his incriminating behavior in the timeline, that he would now fit the profile of somebody who had an inclination for violence to be connected to both girls. Killing and serial killing is specific, but I would say like deliberate acts to ensure people suffer is a whole other territory. It's, it's really different. And I would say that at this point, this guy fits that narrative. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can we also just talk about how it's either ironic or just plain obvious that he lives across from a gas station? It's not. It's has readily accessible. Like he's he can access yeah. gasoline easily. I'll I'll do you one better. I think they were able to confirm. Remember that random car that we see, like grainy in the distance, can't really tell. It's pulling into his driveway and then into a storage shed, like a storage garage. Yeah. Putting gas in there. Big, big canister of gasoline kept in that yeah, yeah. storage garage. Big, big. So <laughs> I don't know how many more dots I have to connect for people here, but let's keep going. <laughs> <clears throat> so the craziest part about this is that according to text records and the family, Jessica, like I said, had only known him for two weeks prior to her being set on fire. So here's the initial the initial pitch that prosecutors toss over for how we put the story together, which I thought was really compelling. We have this evidence that he's pursuing her for sex for the first two weeks. They had like met through a mutual friend or something at a party, like a get together. He's pursuing her for sex. She does not want to. On this night, it is possibly they either consensually had sex, like he said, or there was a very violent assault that took place in her car. They think that he strangled her either out of anger or kink or something, something really gruesome and horrific to the point where he thought she was dead. She's not, like, unconscious. He thinks, I just killed this girl. And again, they were never able to tell if she had any external injuries because of the burning or any sexual injuries because of the burning. So it's really tough to prove this. He thinks she's dead. They think that he then drove her car, her car, up to Heron Road himself. She was found, I think they were able to confirm that she was burned while seated. So she's like sat up in the car. So maybe he staged her body to be sat up in the driver's seat to make it look like an accident Mm. or something. Up on Heron Road, he leaves on foot, starts calling his sister. This is right around that timestamp of like 742, right? And he's up on that trail, has the car keys, Jessica's car, ditches the keys, just tosses them up on the trail, which is where they're later found. And they're submitted later, were found with Quentin's DNA on them, by the way. Leaves a, leaves a fake voicemail on Jessica's phone and then the text where he's like, Bay, I, I can't hang out tonight. Like, I've got friends coming over. I think he then takes the sister's truck from that cut through back to his place, which is what we see at 752, going into the, the storage garage, gets that gasoline because the, the car then leaves, goes back to Heron Road, 
poured gasoline all over the car and down her mouth to set it on fire, thinking she's already dead. He's going to destroy any evidence connecting him to strangling her. The only problem, she was never dead. She's just unconscious from the strangling. So she wakes up in this car, and she is on fire in shock. Manages to stagger out of the car as she's burning into the darkness off the road. It's 40 degrees outside on a pitch black back road. All while Quentin is already off and the plan is unfolding where he's like soaring. That's what we see around like 8 p.m. Soaring to the Piggly Wiggly in Batesville where he's getting this green dot card and then goes home to change his clothes. Take a shower. That is the most logical layout of the timeline I can possibly imagine. Absolutely. And the thing you just pieced together for me, which was really the last little bit of the puzzle, um, I still couldn't wrap my mind around why kill someone that way. And this makes so much more sense. Like, think she's already thought dead. she was dead. And then you decide. I mean, it just makes perfect sense to me. Like somebody that his his has readily available gasoline right there Mm -hmm. knows he has a supply and like that's kind of his first thought like it makes so much sense to me and to leave it's risky of course to leave a murder victim in a car like just leave that on a back road but the proximity of all of this really played into that too where i'm like this is all extremely close like we're talking Mm -hmm. six minute drives up on back roads like in the middle of the night like we're he's he's going for this like he's doing this yeah (sighs) my thing is there's just too much running around afterwards for and I know that that is not something you can base in like a court of law, but there's too much running around. There's too much like chicken with our head cut off energy mm-hmm. after this to make me believe that he's innocent in all this. I agree. I completely agree. I I wish there was even more information I could dig up about like what he was planning to do in the next few days. Like if he was trying to get out of town or like if they found any records of him, like, you know, it's like search results of like towns over or like different Mm -hmm. states to go with. Like that's that tells a story. But that was a super logical layout to me of like how this all happened, even down to the keys getting thrown. Also, the keys having his DNA on them. The problem is it's all circumstantial. Like it like most of this is really circumstantial evidence based on like phone data and like security footage like none of it actually shows something that's truly incriminating that's the problem yeah it's incredibly lucky i i guess if he did it like for how many cameras like really caught so much of the story going down in the phone data how he's still not convicted it's crazy well and i hate to say this but it's also to me indicative of somebody that kind of knows how to get out of sticky situations Mm-hmm. somebody that's not trustworthy like I, that's sort of what it also points to for me because even if he was innocent i agree with you if he was innocent and he finds out that night the girl that he allegedly had sex with he's been seeing for the last two weeks was just charred alive on a road mm-hmm. his reaction is just to leave the gas station and then delete exactly. her number what? exactly what <laughs> what is the i hate people i'm so, i'm sorry i'm really on one <laughs> with this but God damn it. This made me so mad. So how can I possibly tell you that in this trial, all of that given, everything we have just gone through, even that narrative put forward by the prosecution, this has been tried twice in Mississippi 
with both trials being dismissed for a mistrial because of a hung jury, an immovable hung jury. So I do want to run you through some of the key points of the defense here, which huge point of contention in this case, but some of the key points that they kind of bring up as they build out the story to stray away from any sort of guilt for Quinton is that we do have multiple witnesses, all of those first responders who very clearly claimed they heard her say Eric or Derek when naming her attacker. So the defense argued that even if her voice was damaged, the phonetics of that are nowhere near like Quinton, which the prosecution, of course, rebuttaled. And they're saying, you know, not only could it have been that she's saying something like Tellus, like a last name, but also her tongue, her throat, and her lips were burned so badly they were described to be hanging off her body. It is impossible to know what she was actually saying or even what she intended to say from a psychological perspective. The examiner on this case, um, when they got the talk screen back after the autopsy, they found no drugs in her system from that night because a lot of people suspected maybe this could be drug-related. All they found was weed and nicotine. There were additional opioids that were found in her system, which were provided at the hospital to help numb the pain in her final hours. Now, like I said before, the examiner was not able to determine whether or not she had any like external injuries or any sexual trauma because of the burns, but they did not find any evidence of blunt force trauma, like a really bad blow to the head or like damage to bones mm. or anything like that. So the of course, the defense ran with that as well. And they're like, the strangulation scenario or like, you know, beat to nearly to death scenario doesn't really add up because the examiner found nothing. The examiner also believes, like I said before, that the burn pattern suggested that she was seated when she was set on fire and the gasoline was poured down her throat, which they were indicating, the defense saying, that does not suggest somebody who's unconscious it countered the prosecution story because the prosecution is saying she was strangled to be unconscious. But I think that it's plausible that she was strangled to be unconscious and that he just sat her up in the front seat, the driver's seat, to make it look like, duh, she's alone. But thousand percent. <laughs> like why? I don't understand how this was like this, this defense was like so concrete. The jury's like, I just don't know. I just don't know. I absolutely would argue what you just said happened. Yeah. And shockingly, though, I mean, this is enough to confuse a jury where they second guess their decision. And we kind of talked about this with the Casey Anthony case, too. And I would cite both in terms of like how the jury acted. It's sometimes confusing, I think, when the defense starts to over articulate like the the responsibility of a jury and they they like confuse them to the point where they can't see the forest from the mm-hmm. trees. And they're like, let me reiterate what your job is. Your job is to look at the presented evidence, not use your bias and like your predeterminations about somebody. Look at the evidence suggests like presented. Does it prove that this person is without a doubt guilty? That confuses a jury. And clearly it did twice. So they put forward a counterclaim. Um for their version of events to suggest that the nature and the targeting of this maybe looked gang related and it didn't involve Quentin, which I could see the scenario of because it seemed so egregious and gruesome. Now here's where we get some backstory, which helps to support that Jessica had a former boyfriend who was believed to have been involved in a well-known gang in Mississippi. Um, her parents were concerned, like concerned that she was falling into the wrong crowd at just 19 
that boyfriend had already been sent to prison at this point. And Jessica's father later admitted that his daughter had confided in him that she was nervous that the inner circle, referring to that gang, was maybe suspecting her of snitching because her father was a mechanic for the sheriff's office. So then this gets even more confusing because we have a witness statement. This threw everything, everything for me. We have a witness statement that comes out of the woodworks. A woman who comes to testify, uproots the entire case, and strangely enough, the prosecution called her up, not the defense. This woman, Sherry Flowers, happened to be driving by that road on that night, December 6th, when she was driving up near the road where the cut-through trail leads out, like near the sister's house, where we thought Quentin would have been going to his sister's. She claims at that night, it was sometime between like 7 to 8 p.m., she was flagged down by a hitchhiker and gave him a ride at the time because, like, the, like we would be able to trace back, like, this is right when we think Jessica's car, of course, was set on fire, so we're like a hitchhiker coming up from that road. Well, surely it has to be Quentin. Not the case, according to this witness. So she made note that this hitchhiker, he looked about like 20 years old, young black male. She like pulled down her, rolled down her window, pulled over. He's like, do you know Julia Chambers? No relation to Jessica Chambers or the family, just a different woman in town. And he said, that's my aunt. Would you be able to give me a ride to her home? She did know Julia. So she agreed to give him a ride. Again, very clear description of him. 20-year-old, roughly 20-year-old, like young black male was absolutely sure in court while sitting across from Quentin Tellis, who would have been 26, 27 at the time. She goes, that was not the man I gave a ride to. Different guy. Huge, huge wrench in the prosecution. Casts a lot of doubt because now we have this random hitchhiker who clearly knows somebody in town. So this plays into the whole theory about, like, this could have been gang-related because she was a target. Mm. The gang was afraid that she was going to snitch. And it feels like gang-related violence to me in that way. But it it still doesn't absolve him, I would say, because we have this um, – it opened up an additional conversation about, like, she could have been targeted in a gang attack that was carried out to ensure her silence, but – we we go back to Julia Chambers. Let's talk about the aunt, this alleged aunt that this like guy is getting dropped off at. She never got a knock at her door that night, and she does not have a nephew who fits that description. So clearly it was somebody who knew her and was just using her for like a story to get out of a place very quickly, but it was not a real nephew. Apparently, Julia Chambers does happen to be a distant relative of Quentin Tellis, although she had not seen him in many years. So then it started to feel to me like this is some kind of a conspiracy where Quentin did not act alone. How does that right. sit? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. There's just too many, there's too many like interwoven. Here, here's the deal. He was somehow involved in this, whether or not he actually killed her or not. A thousand percent. Some, some, something went down where either this person, the hitchhiker, uh, was helping to cover it up or was, you know, the person that was in the gang trying to get back at Quentin or something. But somehow I still think that that makes Quentin like guilty by association. Like, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I just think if you're involved in any sort of like gang violence, like who cares at that point, it doesn't matter. Like you're both responsible. Both parties are responsible for her death. Yeah. I mean, if you're, 
you know? Yeah, too many things like this web, it all just ties back to him like in so many different ways, even in the ways that are supposed to prove his innocence. Like we've now got this random suspect, this hitchhiker going back to this woman's house back in town, back in Cortland or close closer to Cortland Center, who this woman happens to be related to Quentin. And I know that could mean nothing, but it just feels too coincidental. But yeah. It should be noted that, like I said, the prosecution called her to testify. And I think this was their initial angle to like support um their series of events to suggest they were trying to suggest the man she picked up was Quentin, which still could have very well have been true. I mean, we've got a lot riding on the trust of this random woman, Sherry Flowers, who I think only came out like in the second. Do you hear my coffee maker going off? Yes. Sorry. I was like, oh my God, my oven. No, no, no. <laughs> I have nothing in my oven. <laughs> just baking cookies for the last two hours. I, That's right. I think, yeah, I, I, I just feel like a lot is riding on us trusting that her testifying under oath is like Bible. Like that's like the end all be all. I think it's possible she could have been confused. It could have been dark. Or maybe she was brought up to testify and was actually afraid. Like, it's like, I'll go as far to say, like, I picked up a hitchhiker and gave somebody a ride. The only problem that like throws this off of saying like there's an extra person there, we don't have any additional communications with Quentin, like coordinating with some extra guy or something on his phone, nothing in his records. And it also wouldn't really make a ton of sense about the the sister's truck, because if he's getting the ride back to, you know, his place or somebody is like, how does mm-hmm. the sister's truck from like Heron Road or that cut through play into all of this? I just don't know like where... Her testimony came from. It's so odd. Yeah. It's like a red herring. It doesn't add anything for me. I think all it did was throw off the scent for the defense. And it confused. Well, no, for the prosecution, really. I mean, it like, because the defense was trying to lead into this and they're like, wait, you're saying you picked up a man who wasn't Quentin Tellis from that road around Uh, like 8 p.m.? Well, I meant like throw the scent off of Quentin, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, if anything, it just confused the hell out of a jury. But the prosecution brought up a really good point in court where they were saying, or somebody brought it up where they were saying like, you know, were you called up because you were promised um, that your son would get special treatment if you testified in this case because her son was in prison at the time? So that's illegal as far as I know, I think. But of course, those backdoor deals happen all the time in order for prosecutors and you know defense attorneys to get people to testify like, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. So it, it seemed opportune that more than a year after this horrific event, she thought it was opportune to come forward to say like, oh, by the way, I did pick up a hitchhiker that night from the place where a girl was found burned alive. Again, I'm so sick of I'm sick of people. I really am. Like, yeah, I would. I would be so annoyed as the prosecute uh, prosecution. I would just be like, get this like non-event out of here. It has nothing to do with this. It, it muddied. Nor the- do I even know if there's proof that it actually happened. That's the thing. It's all just hearsay. And they're like, so did yeah. you drop him off at the aunt's house? And she's like, no, I just dropped him off like in the center of the street. And then he got out of the car. And I looked down for a second. I looked up, and I didn't know which direction he went. And I'm like, we don't. Uh, uh, drives me insane. I don't have the patience to be a prosecutor. Is the problem because I would just go right. ballistic in court, and everybody would be <laughs> like, "He's insane. He can't. He, he can't do this." <laughs> but the aftermath of this is that, as the case stands today, like I said many times, we have two mistrials in the Jessica Chambers case. 
and it really remains without justice or a proper name for who ultimately killed her that night. So her mother's final wish before she died has not been has not been valued in this. We don't have a concrete answer for who killed Jessica Chambers. I wonder if in his old age, it will ever come to light. Like, I don't know when the statute of limitations would run out or something, but like, if a good question would ever come clean about it. Well, it's tricky too, because if he does have gang affiliations, uh, a lot of times what they will do is they'll offer him like, please, if he can confess to mm-hmm. something, you know what I mean? But snitching, even in prison, is a dangerous game because yeah. there are people yeah. on the inside who will absolutely have you killed. Absolutely 100%. have you killed to silence you. So that's what I think makes it difficult. But... <sighs> Got more going on in the background, baby. I literally, I literally <laughs> turned it off, and it's the new version of Teams, and it will literally just like keep popping up, and I hate it. Oh, I'm so sorry, baby. you're totally fine. But really, that is the final, the final aftermath of all I have of the case. I know I threw a lot of information at you. It's it's a very complex case in terms of piecing together the timestamps, but I had heard the top line of this story a long time ago. I heard about a teen who like people drove up and they found a burning girl walking in the middle of the street. And that was so chilling, so chilling to imagine that. I knew it was mysterious that they hadn't really named, you know, who'd done it. But what is your final gut reaction to this? Do you fully believe that Quentin Tellis acted alone or do you believe he had an accomplice? You know, I actually think he acted alone. Mm-hmm. But I think there were other people involved, but I just don't think they knew what he had done. Like, I think that he honestly was doing that maybe out of fear, like burning. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I think he was fearful that, oh, my God, I've just killed this person. Now mm-hmm. I need to destroy all the evidence. Yeah. But there's something about them hanging out together that feels very much like. He shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. And Mm -hmm. after they hung out, maybe some like guilt or something about it just doesn't sit right with me. Like it it doesn't feel like he just had a hookup with her and then was like, all right, bye. Like, see ya. Kind of like. Yeah, of course. Energy, I guess I would say. It feels like they were hanging out and then he felt like somebody was going to get her or get him and oh oh i see what you're saying you know what you just reminded me i have something that can color that so i'm curious the ex-boyfriend that i was talking to you about jessica's ex-boyfriend um Mm -hmm. who the alleged uh gang affiliation he was put away he was going to be put away for five years i think on a drug-related offense she told him i'll wait for you so technically i think she's i don't know betrothed is such a stupid word but like she's supposed to be with this guy in prison she's supposed to be staying faithful for him so i almost wondered if like obviously she's hanging out with this quentin guy whether or not they're just hanging out it sounds like she was rejecting his advances sexual assault happens between them he strangles her kills her so it's kind of twofold like he knows he's going to be killed one for sleeping with her or raping her to for killing the girl who is effectively the girlfriend of this rival gang member maybe who's in prison 
So I was going to say, if he's a rival gang member, that would make so much sense. Yes. So I think the panic in that is really to, I think it was about trying to destroy evidence. I don't know if he knew that she was still alive. It's just so, so disturbing to think that like she woke up and she's burning from the inside out. Yeah. I don't think he knew that she was alive. That that I will say, because at the beginning, that's where I was so hung up. I was like, in what world does somebody like either pin someone down and force fed gasoline, shove gasoline yeah. down there? Yeah. It's like, really how does that go down? Really disturbing. Yeah. I think so that it makes, makes way a lot more of sense. sense that she was already dead. Or that or he thought, thought she was. Yeah, thought to be dead. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I agree. It's just the whole thing is so sad and devastating. And the silence, I guess, makes sense in, in the in the aspect that like he's he could be killed in prison, but he's not in prison in Mississippi, as far as I know, because he's in prison in Louisiana, which is where the other murder is being tried. The Thai exchange student who was found tortured and stabbed 30 times, and he took her debit card, if we think it was him. <laughs> And was that torture gang related or something? I don't I don't know very much about her case, actually, because I really was digging into like the the Jessica Chambers story. I just knew that that factored into like Quinton's case and like what the prosecution was using to say, like, clearly he has a propensity for violence or he is now duly connected to two cases involving torturous, gruesome murders. Come on. I literally was about to say something so out of pocket. And I was going to say. Well, when there's smoke, there's fire. And then I was like, no, not for this no, case. No, 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 You can't. I, Literally, I, the words were like, I mean, they did come out of my mouth, but like I was going to say it totally like just using the phrase. And I feel like that's. I know. I know. It's strange how many, timing. how many um, like phrases we have that actually use the word fire. Because I almost said that during this research where I was like the word was spreading mm-hmm. like fire through the town. And I was like, stop. I stopped myself. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's unintentional. But. That is everything I got for you, Stu. That is the Jessica Chambers case. Creepers, I know that was a tough one, but this is such an important story to keep pushing for, especially now that her mother is gone and this girl still does not have justice. And like I said, I've, I've been in the weeds with it for a while now and I've seen those photos. What was done to her? You can't wish on anybody. Like it was, it's one of the most gruesome stories of murder I've covered in a long time very very long time i just i want to request if there are any creepers that are from around that area like this would be a local lore kind of situation i'd be very very curious to know like what the locals think about this oh, I because that's such a it. small town yeah i posted stuff oh about yeah it and like there were, i saw a few people from neighboring counties or within that county like 30 minutes away everybody everybody thinks quentin did it Mm. every i mean it's just so black and white come on like it's on camera most of it that's so disturbing <sighs> maybe we'll we'll do a lighter case next week maybe we'll <laughs> <laughs> maybe do you know we'll... what it is about this one is i feel like you and i are sitting in the police station right now just like absolutely eating a donut and having coffee just being like god Damn it. It's it's really infuriating. Yeah, it's really infuriating. I mean, I think I really still side with that initial prosecution timeline I put forward. I think you do too. Like it feels so, so logical. The the only problem with it really is like we can't prove like the sexual assault and we can't prove the the injuries to the neck. It's disappointing. 
but it is disappointing. I'm very hopeful that we will revisit this case down the line and hopefully we will see a confession or some additional piece of evidence that helps get a conviction here because I think a, a killer should be named. I really, really hope that this is one that sees a solve. I don't know how you carry that image for the rest of your life without eventually confessing, like even in his very, very old age. Mm-hmm. The idea that he just walked off and the last thing he saw was a burning body. I mean, there will be a reckoning. Perhaps. Mark my words. Okay. Put that on merch. There will be a reckoning. Mark Stu's words. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to wrap us up before we keep going down the rabbit hole. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this case. It was really important. I know it wasn't easy to get through. Did the pictures help? Is that helpful? Yes. Oh, my okay. God. They always help. Okay. Good, good, good. Um. So with that, we'll wrap up this episode. And guys, we'll catch you on another episode of Creep Time. Sue, shall we say goodbye? And good luck, y'all. I will say we didn't do any Southern accents during that. And this is a Mississippi case. I feel like it, maybe it, was, it wasn't appropriate <laughs> to do so. I know. I got real, like, um. maybe it was just the team's notification going off in the background. I got real corporate real quick. Mm. It's like... <laughs> And with that, guys, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye, creepers.